0: Our guest this week is a fellow PM Baryan, Krishna Prasad, or KP as he's popularly known. KP shares how he wanted to be in sales and then started working at the aeronautical development agency ADA, where he picked up the rigour behind developing military standard software. KP served in several leadership positions and talks about that journey and what it takes to make people believe. With his vast experience in automotive software, with companies like Mercedes, Tata and Delphi, he shares his outlook on automatic modeling capabilities and code generation in the automotive software industry. KP also shares the books that have inspired him and a message for young aspirants. Good afternoon, KP. A very warm welcome to you on the Software People Stories. I've been looking forward to this conversation with you as a fellow PM Parian. We've had almost all PM Parians as guests on this show, and it's wonderful to have you here. Once again, a very warm welcome to you.
1: Hey, Chitra. Nice to be talking to you. Good afternoon. I'm glad that we could find time and I really look forward to sharing some some good stuff, I hope.
0: Certainly. We ask our guests to begin the conversation by introducing themselves. How would you like to do that for our listeners?
1: My name is Krishna Prasad and uh, I've been doing software and managing software and maybe high-tech product development for the last 20 years. So I hold a graduate mechanical degree, but I also went on to do my software master's. And also I had the fortunate thing to do a a PhD from IISc, And uh, I've been fortunate to work with some really great companies like Mercedes-Benz and Tata Group, Terex or Delphi Automotive. Got a chance to work on a variety of products. And personally, I went through my own journey of doing software myself, doing project management, doing some department management, working on new products, and also interacting with customers a lot, trying to understand what can create a good customer impact as well as business impact. So I've been mean, kind of lucky to see the different parts of the uh, software and uh, technology product.
0: That sounds like an extremely interesting journey, KP. I have a lot of questions mm-hmm. that will be peppered throughout this conversation, hopefully. Did you always want to be an engineer? How did this whole journey start for you?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that's a great question because, you know, you know when, when we grew up, I hate to say this, it's probably cliched, like, you know, more than ever, uh, but we had choice like, oh, you know, you want to be an engineer or or a doctor because in our, I mean, we, we, I grew up as a very, very typical middle-class family. Of course, the parents always had this aspiration that, ah, oh, you know, like my son has to become either an engineer or a doctor. My dad was an engineer in a public sector factory. So yeah, I mean, uh, it was somehow always a choice between an engineer and a doctor. And though I kind of loved the doctor profession, but somehow I was not so very inclined with the with the topic of biology and dealing with, let's say, the human body and so on. So somehow I kind of defaulted into studying engineering. Let's put it that way.
0: That sounds like a very familiar story for several of us. Yes. Uh, but then, okay. So after your engineering, what did you do next? How did that journey begin? Yes.
1: So... When, when I was studying engineering, um, somehow I was always thinking, hey, I should, I should get into sales and sales and marketing. I don't know, somehow from the outside, it always felt glamorous. And then I was also you know, talking to some of my classmates and some of them were kind of really passionate about sales and marketing. Though heart in heart, I think I was more like a R&D person. Even when I look back myself, I would probably love to sit by a desk, pour through some textbooks or or literature and really try to understand what is happening. But somehow the sales and marketing came out as a very glamorous thing. And uh, I made some attempts. To be honest, I made some attempts to get into the sales and marketing, but I was kind of miserable. I, I couldn't really make it. And then again, I kind of defaulted into, you know, sitting by the desk and doing stuff, what really has to get into a product rather than standing in front of the customer, selling something. Uh, But one thing I realized is um, even as an engineer, whether you're writing a piece of code or doing some design or developing a product, I don't think we can ever get away from not reaching out to customer. I think the only difference is you're probably not going to a customer as a sales or a marketing person, but really a person who is passionate about the product and passionate about putting the product in customers' hands, so that at the end the customer feels happy using the product. So if I look back, yeah, I mean uh, maybe I didn't really wear the sales and marketing uh, hat, but I'm glad that okay I could still deliver some products uh, to the to the hands of the customer.
0: That's an interesting aspect KP never knew that one of your aspirations was to be in sales and marketing. So from then on, your experience has been largely with automotive and the automotive sector. So what were some of those experiences Mm -hmm. like? And what can you share? Did you have any aha moments or insightful moments in terms of, let's say, engineering practices, the art of development, and uh, what were they like? Uh, what were some of your key takeaways from those experiences? Yeah, sure.
1: So, like, though I have spent a lot of time in automotive, actually the, the true software career started in, in avionics, in aerospace. So, you know, that's where I even, even now I keep thinking, though I learned coding and programming and so on, I kind of truly became a software engineer in uh, aeronautical development agency. That was because we were developing a mission computer software. So we had to go through the rigor of MIL standard and go through the rigor of writing the requirements, specifications well, and design documentation, and the whole journey of a rigorous military standard software. And so, again, when I look back, it's so different than just writing a piece of code uh, because there is so much more than just writing code which can run on a hardware. Then for, for all the good reasons, when I joined Daimler, it was initially the aerospace group, but later it became Daimler Chrysler and we all became part of the automotive group. And that's when I was again, kind of forced into the automotive field, which of course I don't regret because I had this fantastic opportunity to work on some really leading technologies, which would ultimately get into a luxury car like Mercedes. So some of the aha moments when we from India, you know, you try to develop software, when you try to develop electronics, which ultimately get into a, a car like like Mercedes or even, you know, in recent times when I was working on some projects which, which would ultimately go in either JLR or a BMW. I think we need to put extra effort, you know, to think like, what it is to sit in a car and drive, and then how our software and the products we developed could really, you know, enhance that experience. I know as a, as a young engineer, it's kind of a little bit difficult to get into that mindset, but I would kind of really always encourage whenever I meet with young engineers, have some conversations to always think that, hey, you're just not writing a piece of code in, you know, getting into a product not just piece of code it could be design it could be testing whatever so always it's good to think how a, a an end user or a customer is going to use a product and then can we make a difference you know when we are developing that product that would be always my kind of loud thinking
0: thanks kp from Actually, you talked about rigor in software and I certainly recall that as part of the Daimler experience and something Mm -hmm. that has stayed with me. Do you get a sense that the products that are being developed today are somehow missing that degree of rigor? Or would you say that the same rigor is there? It just depends on the industry that you are in. What, what do you think is happening there?
1: Yes. No, I think that's, again, a great point. And, uh, you know, if we, if we sit back and think how we used to develop, let's say, a braking system 15 years ago, and today, of course, like there is a lot of knowledge which has been built to develop an advanced braking system, but that's probably not enough because, you know, now the braking system is now a bigger part of, uh, let's say, an autonomous driving, you know? so, and, Today, the systems have grown complex and whatever we develop as a product will typically have to work with multiple other other systems to deliver that great customer experience. So the rigor definitely uh, has remained. It's the the nature of rigor has only changed and uh, that comes to this whole concept of, okay, this lean agile thinking, I still remember, let's say 10 years ago, we would get probably 10 to 12,000 page requirements from a car manufacturer and say, okay, this is my requirements. Now you please come up with design. We would take about four to five months to go with a design document. They would be, you know, having some questions, we would come back and then the actual product development would happen. But now that that whole thinking has changed and, uh, Every automotive car company or tier one company has realized that we cannot write this 10,000 page requirements upfront. At the end of the product development journey, it could so happen that there are 5,000 pages of documentation, but that has evolved and it will continuously evolve over the period of time so that the rigor is still there. But there is a continuous, incremental development, so that everybody involved actually get to see and get to know, okay, how the product is getting developed. So that, I think that's a great, you know, a sea of change that we are seeing in a so-called traditional automotive industry. So my uh, view is the rigor is there, but the nature of development, you know, has changed. So we even talk about continuous. certification continuous compliance so it may not be compliance every alternate day but at least every eight weeks every 12 weeks we should make sure that what we deliver is uh, we we are able to certify or we are you know uh, able to go through some compliance
0: checks that sounds interesting because then i'm also wondering if when you say continuous does that give organizations the opportunity to keep up with changes in the external environment, especially when it comes to things like security and compliance, because these are typically things that are also largely influenced by other events or developments that are happening in various different environments. So for example, if we're looking at um, safety needs or regulatory and other government compliances Mm -hmm. in different countries, those could change. And if you had the continuous approach versus an all versus nothing approach, the the continuous one would sort of give you the opportunity to continuously examine and update whenever necessary. Yes. So do you see a lot more of that happening?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, like uh, one thing that what we also realize and uh, when we talk to many of our customers, the systems are getting complex. And if the moment we start talking autonomous driving or advanced driver assistance systems in automotive, or it could be in aerospace or some other, you know, industry, the regulatory compliance aspects, they are relentless. They are, you know, increasing the bar. They're raising the bar every, you know, almost every day. On the one hand, the systems are getting complex. On the other hand, there is this huge amount of regular, Regulatory compliances. So the I think the only chance you know we have as R and D and you know uh, engineering and you know, product development folks is uh, we have to bake in safety. We have to bake in compliance. It no longer can be uh, bolt on. That means I go through the product development for a few months, then say, oh, I wake up and say, oh, I need to do some compliance. So let me do that uh, after this product development. I don't think that will work. We'll be taking a huge risk. That's how this concept of continuous compliance is so very attractive that we continuously bake in built-in quality, compliance, and all the regulatory aspects along with the product features. And uh, that's when I think we will be able to manage the complexity and we'll be able to deliver the right value to the customers.
0: That sounds very exciting, especially given all that's happening in the automotive space. I still remember when we bought our first vehicle that had an operating system on it. It's the Mahindra XUV. Mm -hmm. And all of us were so thrilled to see when it gave us the first indicators of uh, there's less air in a tire or that your engine needed some tuning or Mm -hmm. if there was any other issue. We were all very thrilled and excited with it. So certainly exciting times ahead. What do you see as areas where uh, you you referred to Lean Agile and how Mm -hmm. Uh, requirements were just perhaps being broken down into just-in-time uh, delivery for just-in-time delivery, and uh, how, but the rigor and all still remains. Yes. What do you right. see as the next thing that's going to happen in terms of automotive platform software development?
1: Of course, there is uh, there is automotive, but we can also relate that relate that in in some other uh, domains. Maybe what I would like to probably touch upon here is, yes, there is this lean agile thinking and uh, the regulatory aspects, the compliance aspects have to get continuously baked in. There is no bolt-on approach. So it has to be built in uh, as we are doing the development. And uh, I mean, whether it is networking or whether it's aerospace or automotive, I think, you know, or or healthcare, for example, in all these areas, probably this approach uh, will work. I think, I mean, going forward, there are all these big mega trends, connectivity and data and uh, huge amounts of data getting generated. How do you monetize and and, and so on. But from uh, engineering, from R&D and uh, the way we develop, I see even coding becoming commoditized. And uh, nowadays we talk about low coding, no coding, automation platforms. Uh, of course, you spoke about a platform approach. I think you know people are trying platform and and modularization and how to deliver software as services. I think we will see that in most of the domains. I mean, including automotive. But uh, one thing which probably you know is very le- relevant for our engineering community and auto, you know, the R and D community, is how do we deal with the developments in automation? Whether it is testing automation, whether it is coding automation, that means you, know, you get into this model-based engineering and then once you model the system, you can theoretically generate a lot of code. So you don't need to write code. But I see that is is kind of going to majorly impact the way we develop software. And a lot of our young people are probably still not kind of prepared for that. We still believe that ah, we have to write you know, lots of code. Of course we have to write a lot of code, but we have to get eventually uh, prepared for doing a, a lot of automatic uh, code generation. And then the other thing I think we should kind of keep telling ourselves and our young engineers and middle age engineers is, how do we develop this T-shaped skills? Uh, and what do we mean by T-shaped skills? We need to develop some competence in a particular area for sure. You know, that's a deep skill, but we cannot rely only on one deep skill. We probably need to also have some generic skills, and that's what we call as T-shaped, and then be able to work effectively with our team members, not just as a star individual, but kind of really within the team environment. And that's what we keep promoting in Lean Agile and say, hey, how you as a team member is effectively contributing, you know, with with your T-shaped skills. I think that's a very important point, which we need to uh, keep keep bringing about in our R&D environment.
0: Thanks, KP. Those were some really, really interesting insights over there. So in your career or in your career journey when you transitioned from being an individual contributor to a manager, and then eventually on to a large number of leadership roles, Mm -hmm. what was that transition for you like personally? Yeah. And uh, that's one part of my question. And the other part is for people aspiring to be leaders or take on leadership roles. What is it that you can share from your experience? Yeah,
1: sure. Of course, most of us, you know, uh, go through this typical kind of career journey and say, okay, I was a young software engineer, then I became a team leader, a manager, and so on. Uh, Of course, like some people are lucky that, okay, you have a kind of a single track way up. And uh, a lot of people are very successful climbing this ladder. But increasingly, we see that that's a very difficult thing to happen to most of us. And I personally have seen that many times we have to do some lateral movements. It may seem like you're just doing a lateral movement, you're not really going up. But uh, if I look back on my journey, I always think some of these lateral movements are extremely critical to at least become a well-rounded individual. And uh, so uh, it could be lateral in terms of an R&D area, or it could be completely lateral in terms of function. Of course, like moving laterally within an R&D area could, could be relatively easier compared to, let's say, moving a complete function, right? So maybe, you know, from an R&D, you move into, I don't know, manufacturing or sales and marketing or, and things like that. So that is relatively difficult, uh, but still a lot of people make that move and are quite successful but i think at the end of the day you know we need to tell ourselves that hey whatever you're doing are you adding value to the company are you adding value to your people are you adding value to yourself and that's why i i like this book on ikigai you know you must have heard about it it's this whole japanese philosophy and i was just reading that book you know very recently and it beautifully captures how can you balance you know, your passion, your mission, and then your profession. So, and the magic happens when all this kind of, you know, find that right intersection. But I don't think we should be too concerned. If it doesn't happen, then, you know, we should find some ways of uh, keeping on looking at, okay, how do I add value to myself, to my people, and then uh, my customer and my company. So there are all these different aspects, which, you know, we can keep on thinking about
0: certainly. KP, I've heard about the concept of ikigai, and so wanted to ask you, what mm-hmm. have been some of your moments where you've either discovered your ikigai or yes. how has that happened for you?
1: Yes. So I, I think, of course, like you know, we always wish, and uh, you know, I think that's uh, that it's always good good wish to have that whatever job role we are playing, whether you're a consultant, whether you're a manager, uh, or a department leader, anything, anything we are doing, you know, in in this world that, you know, we want that magical intersection. And also during the phases of career, I'm sure, you know, we will find that magical intersection, maybe for a couple of years. And then, you know, the environment changes, or you, you kind of get bored and want to do something else. So uh, I don't think, there is a permanent ikigai state, though, of course, you know, we always would love to have. And the only thing is, if you continuously recognize that, okay, this phase of the career, you have a fantastic ikigai moment, maybe after a couple of years, you know, you moved uh, to a different environment and then maybe it'll take a little bit more time to again, rediscover that ikigai moment. But I hope it'll be a kind of continuous journey of that discovery process. And I think the discovery process itself, you, sh- you should start loving and rather than looking at, at it as a destination. You know, Sometimes I tend to think like that, that it will not be a destination, but it will be a, a discovery process, which you'll start enjoying.
0: That's a nice way to look at it, KP. Thank you. I hope many people can look at what's happening with their lives, largely in a discovery dimension versus an end state that most That's of right. us to aspire
1: to. Yeah. And, and by the way, I think that's also something which we in Lean Agile, you know, we keep uh, at least promoting as a thinking that we, even when it comes to quality, when it comes to customer satisfaction, when it comes to products, there can never be a state where it has reached an ideal, you know, kind of situation. Today, what the customer loves, tomorrow it becomes a commodity. So the customer is looking for something new. Today, what we think is a gold standard, tomorrow will suddenly become a silver or a bronze standard. So that's why this whole concept of continuous journey and a continuous improvement, there is never a state where you say, ah, okay, now it, it, it is perfect, right? Of course, there, there could be this fleeting moments where you get that you know, feeling that, okay, we have reached that stage, but immediately from next day, you are on a quest for the new, let's say, gold standard. Right. So that's also the concept of lean agile.
0: So now that you've you've mentioned this quite a bit, were there moments in your experience where let's say, and and this is something that we are looking at organizations go through all the time, organizations Mm -hmm. feel that they have to undergo a transformation or make, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, which is changes across the board and uh, often wonder why they didn't do it all along. And they embark on this journey of transformation and then yeah. all kinds of things begin to happen. Reflecting on what you said in terms of it's a continuous journey, it's, it's a continuous mm-hmm. discovery, it's continuous learning. What have been your experiences? Have you, know, you experienced this when you were running yep. a large organization? Mm-hmm. What was that transformation like? And as a leader, how did you rally people around it or keep them engaged with the transformation?
1: Yeah, Uh, I think, you know, this is probably the most difficult, you know, uh, thing if I look back, and even as we are consulting, you know, with organizations going through whatever transformation, I think today, a lot of people talk about digital transformation, lean agile transformation, business agility, and and so on. So, uh, industry 4.0, it has only become louder. I think this whole idea of transformation has always been there. But today it has become a little bit louder because the environment we are in have become a little bit more complex. And I know it is cliche, but we are in this VUCA world and it has impacted almost every industry, right? Of course, not to talk about this pandemic, which definitely has impacted every individual on this earth. But in general, this VUCA world has engulfed most of our industry segments. And uh, so every leader, be it a department leader, be it a center leader, be it a large business, be it a small business, have to keep thinking what next for my customer. And uh, if they stop thinking what next for their customer, the customers are going somewhere else. I I think that's the big issue today that customers have so much of choice and there is this constant disruption that is happening through new players entering uh, new offerings and new business models. So I think today, most of the managers cannot just sit quiet and say, things will be all right, doing nothing. Even if just doing something which they have been doing, let's say for the last five years is not enough because tomorrow that could become not valuable for the customer. So, but just reinforcing this thinking within our people stating that what we are doing today will not be sufficient you know, to see uh, or get into our future that realization you know we have to keep on reinforcing within our people and then of course there is this all this other good stuff that should happen like you know people should believe in the in the future of the company or the department and whether we are making the right choices, right? Whether it is process, whether it is tools, whether it is uh, type of customers we want to go behind, all that will kind of follow. But people should get that belief that we are, we are making the right choices and the leader is making the right choices. And at least the leader should be able to explain to people that, hey, why are we making these choices? Because at the end of the day, it's all about making the choice And continuously checking whether the choice they made is yielding the result or they need to kind of change track.
0: In your experience, KP, what is it that you did to ensure that people had belief in this transformation or this big change? And did that work?
1: Uh, Yes. So I must say that candidly that, okay, I have seen a couple of transformation journeys in the last at least six to eight years, maybe three Uh, all in different contexts. But if somebody were to come and ask me, hey, if you look back, you know, did all these transformations, were they successful? I must say that, you know, it was only partly successful. You know, so there is always this thing that, okay, we start off a transformation journey with high aspiration and high expectation. But most often, that expectation will turn out to be, maybe it was an You know, too much of an aspiration, but there are a lot of other factors which come in. uh, Probably doesn't give the, the kind of real end result. But one thing I'm very confident about, talk with conviction, is no matter what, I think this whole transformation journey is important. And there can be probably no one end point for a transformation. Again, I would look at it as a journey. And during this journey, there is fantastic learning for the leader, for the people who are involved, and probably people discover new ways of working. There are a lot of these aha moments that, hey, three years ago, I would never have thought about this, but today, you know, it is, it is working because we just forced ourselves that we have to do something different and better, right? So if I just look at it, I think it's going to be really a good result. If every individual or majority of the individuals uh, gain some learning, the, the leaders gain some learning. Finally, the organizations also see, see some improvement.
0: That's a nice way of looking at it, KP. Thank you so much. So mm-hmm. as we are coming to the end of our conversation, yeah. we often ask our guests to see if they'd like to leave a message for people aspiring to get into the world of uh, technology or the software industry what are some messages that you would like to leave people Mm -hmm. with who wish to get into this, this tech technology
1: world? Sure. Sure. No, I think this is a fantastic area, fantastic field. You can make a huge impact on uh, customer experiences, on customer journey and hopefully positive impact on the world. So it's a great area to get in. I mean, it's, it's so broad, right? So Uh, you know, like literally you can pick up any area and still make a positive impact, you know, using technology. The one thought I would leave uh, here is we have to be really aware that when we enter this technology area, there is always something called half-life of skills. And this half-life of skills is dramatically reducing as days are passing by. So, there is no two ways about okay getting into a technology area and thinking that what you know today will get you ahead for next three to five years that probably will not happen and so there is this constant need for learning and learning new skills or uh, honing the skills or doing some you know learning completely something different Uh, because today there is no excuse, you know, like 20 years ago, one could have said, oh, you know, I don't have the resource. I don't have, I don't know where to go to learn and so on. But today there is no such excuse. There is complete access and almost unlimited access to resources. And it is just that we need to develop that mindset of uh, learning every day. And uh, I learned from Uh, Robin Sharma, you know, reading his book, uh, The 5 a.m. Club, uh, that there is this concept of daily learning. So we need to set aside whatever it is, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour as a daily learning time and learn anything. You know, it doesn't matter whether it is related to technology or anything, but it's good to have that daily learning routine you know, and I picked it up from uh, Robin Sharma. And I'm kind of really grateful for that. And I hope it will all help us keep going into the future.
0: Certainly, KP, I'm sure it will. Thank you for those tips. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. our listeners are going to benefit a lot from it. It's been wonderful having you as a guest here. I'm certainly looking forward to more conversations with a fellow PM Parian on so many more topics. But thank you so much for being here.
1: Absolutely. Chitra, I think it was a great conversation and, uh, you know, you kind of triggered a lot of thoughts in my mind. And thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I wish uh, best of luck for all our listeners and uh, best greetings.
0: We thank Siddharth for the music.